You're Going to Die, the podcast is brought to you by YG2D, a 501c3 nonprofit bringing diverse communities creatively into the conversation of death and dying, inspiring life by unabashedly sourcing our shared mortality. To find out more, visit www.yg2d.com. My memories of this super sweet conversation with Laura Sullivan Cassidy will always be shadows dappled with sunlight as Laura helps me cry just like I needed. reality is that so often in these conversations, I get catharsis. That's what's happening here. I guess for you listeners, especially if you haven't participated in some of what we offer, which we do online, by the way, you don't have to be in the San Francisco Bay Area to participate in our events. You can participate in our events online every week. We do a grief release for free on Zoom at 5 p.m., just giving you an option if you're listening from afar. And we have in-person shows now as we come out of the summer twice a month in San Francisco and Berkeley. So you can go to our website, yg2d.com, and connect all that. But my point is, if you haven't been a part of some of our spaces, I guess these conversations on the podcast give you a little bit of a sense of what's possible especially if you catch an episode, which is highly likely where I am crying. And by the way, this is Ned Buskirk, your resident crier here on You're Going to Die, the podcast, your very own, yours, just yours, Creatively Conscious Mortality podcast. What I'm trying to say is that a conversation like the one I had with Laura is a taste of what happens in the spaces we facilitate. There are tears, there is catharsis, there is connectedness and surprise, you know, coming to get what you know you need and leaving with something you didn't realize you need, that both those things can occur, I hope. That's a prayer. I'm making that prayer, declaring that prayer, prayer declare, uh, and recorded. So it will live on here, ongoing prayer every time someone listens to this episode that you come to the space like I came to this conversation and get what you need and just get blasted by all the stuff you didn't realize you need. And that's what I'll say to set you up for this conversation with Laura Sullivan Cassidy. Laura is a writer, editor, creative consultant, coach, artist, experience maker, and grief, death, funeral care worker based in Seattle, Washington. The majority of their current work is split between one-to-one creative consulting and coaching, which includes something they call grief mapping. We'll get into that a little bit in this convo. And their role leading community and outreach at Recompose, which is founded by CEO Katrina Spade, the leader and pioneer of the human composting movement. They also write, edit, and produce Griever's Ball on Substack. I hope you enjoy the newest episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Laura Sullivan Cassidy. 
Well, um, I, I, I'm pretty good, and and I'm also not gonna omit something that I've been thinking a lot about um, for obvious reasons. I uh, so uh, on Monday night we found out that my oldest nephew died of an accidental overdose, mm. and. Um, this was a person who had sort of a, a hard go at things from the beginning of his life. And, um, and so that is what it is. And, um, so I'm moving through that and I'm, you know, my family is planning the memorial via family thread on Facebook messenger, you know, mm-hmm. and all that, that is, all that is sort of terrible and efficient about that. And, um, mm-hmm. And what I think I'm thinking about is, and I've had a couple conversations with, you know, colleagues and folks about is it's, it's, there's something I'm waiting for the webinar or the, you know, round table discussion or the night at the end of the something or other when the, when the talk turns to what happens when death happens to those who work in death, you know, and just the way that you're sometimes led to think that, you know, maybe you have a certain understanding or you've got a kind of agency or, um, you know, you've got this on one mm-hmm. way, one, one hand or another, you know? Um, yeah. And, and, and then you sort of don't, or maybe you do, you know, and maybe your family sort of defers to you and maybe they sort of look to you and maybe that's good and it feels nice and you are able to show up that way. But it still does all the things to you that that it, it would do if you were, you know, an accountant or a barista or a something mm. or other, you know. Yeah, yeah. Whew. Did I touch something? <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, I think the very what it seems the 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 obvious point is. And then I'll tell you what I probably really kind of touched something. Um, but the obvious point is, yeah, like what is it to do this and then be personally involved in forever ongoing inevitable versions of it? And how are we in that? And how are people looking to us for that in that? Um, I feel that so deeply, um, what you're describing. I think for me, and and I wonder if you relate, there's the... I just am familiar with this is a lot or this is a big question mark or this is a lot of questions and I'm really good at the experience I have that others have given me and honored me with the chance to like be in the uh, familiarity of that. You know, like like sometimes I'll say my confidence in that context, even when it's something that's close for me, maybe especially when it's close, I, I'm more grounded and and present and clear than if I go to the grocery store and run into like some kind of numbers issue at the checkout stand, you know, mm. um, or when it's time to like often say like do an Excel spreadsheet or do an interview, you know, like I'm going to be a mess, but it's when this stuff, it's like, I'm feeling it and it's hurting and maybe even has me out feeling out of control and at a loss, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in it a hundred percent you know, and it has me wholly and fully there. Do you relate to that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. I mean, I think part of the reason that I drifted towards this 
or maybe not even drifted. Sometimes I was actively steering the boat, right? For sure. The reason I have made as much of my life about the end of life as, as I can is that it feels so much more like this is what living is. You know, I, I don't, it's hard for me to feel like I'm living in the middle of a spreadsheet or sometimes at the, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah, totally. And so um, my sense that this is what we came here to do is most um, attuned and, yeah, grounded in the weirdest way. You know, mm-hmm. when I am able to help folks navigate a situation that feels unnavigable, you know. Something that I really resonated in your notes, I don't, I didn't want to be a therapist because I felt like it might confine me to do it this way, which is show up and say the thing that I'm heartbroken about and know that say for you and I today, like you've already done with me, our togetherness and how much it matters and how connected we are and whatever we need from being together depends on being that visible and not wanting to do any version of a career, even if it felt like, oh, I'll get into mental health. I'll help people as a psychotherapist or knowing there's limitations to that. No disrespect to people out there doing that work that are needed in our community. But knowing for me, that's definitely not the work I that was a good match because of some of what we're talking about. Yeah, it's interesting um, that you bring up um, work in, in, in general in that moment because one of the last kind of, or one of the important threads that's kind of going in my um, substack right now is this idea of grieving at work, you know, and a friend of mine have been kind of doing this epistolary kind of back and forth um, set of posts between his substack and mine. He's a big um, empathy expert and has a lot of um, scholarship and experience within sort of ideas of purpose and how do we show up and how do we treat each other at work. And, um, I think where I'm at now with it after he and I having, you know, kind of exchanged a couple of, of posts with each other and with our audiences is like kind of the problem is like, yeah, it's really hard to show up at work when you're in grief and it's really hard to get to navigate that, that moment when you're trying to go back to work or maybe not trying to go back to work, but you're still trying to get your paycheck and you're still trying to keep the wheels on. Um, and to know how to be and talk with your coworkers, supervisors, whatever. But it's not actually relegated just to grief. You know, there, there are a lot of ways in which it's really just hard to show up at work and be who you are. Um, because it often interferes with this kind of productivity. <laughs> yeah. March, which you is said a, it, yeah, you know, capitalism. Yeah, you said, and, didn't you say <laughs> one of your notes? I love, and the listeners are going to be like, "Oh, here, here, Ned goes again," or "Here they go again about capitalism." But you said at one point in your story, as you wrote it out in this email, that you you had a moment of like, "Done with capitalism," you know, good riddance, moving yeah, on, you know. Yeah, and I would say even in spaces that aren't. Um, you know, just about like moving units or whatever, you know, even in spaces that are really 
open and generative and anti-capitalist or feminist or whatever, it can be mm. hard to show up as yourself because things right. need to get done. And, and I, so I think, um, you know, there's something really there that I haven't been able to put all fingers on yet, but, mm-hmm. um, just how do we, how do we be who we are, um, as often as possible in as many of our neighborhoods and communities and necessary spaces as possible. And, and I don't mean like that you, you know, we should just let ourselves be kind of messy and raw and loose, but, um, but how do you, how do you, how do you not feel that you're betraying yourself? You know, how do you get to that place where you're saying what you need to say and showing up the way you need to show up? Um, without feeling like something's need needs to be hidden, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, just my sense for you so far is that, I mean, so much of what you've been led by in this work is maybe trying to tend to that. Do you feel yeah. like as much as you've had a list, I mean, literally a list of loss that I almost just even wonder, like, do you want to get into sharing some of the sort of story of you being in this work from your own personal losses? But but being someone who's been led probably into this work from that experience, your own grief and loss, also trying to be like, well, what is my truest, you know, sense of self and that this work gives you a chance to be that. Yeah. And to help others figure that out. I mean, I think for me, the constants in my work, um, I always, when I see somebody that I haven't seen in a while and like, Oh, what, what are you doing now? I'm always just sort of like, do you have 15 minutes? Cause it's going to take me that long to sort of break it down. And, um, because, you know, years ago, my life was so, so, so different in, in some ways, but I, I see the thread. And I think that the, that thread is, um, wanting to help people see what their story is, see what their story could be, see who they are as a character, see who they want to be as a character, see how they want things to be and, and how to help shape it into that, you know? And so I think through journalism and things like this, my job was to sort of, even back in social work and, and those early things that I did, it was like, okay, you arrive at the scene, you interview all the players, you start to understand what's going on, knowing that you're going to come back later and need to tell this story to somebody else. And ultimately, that's kind of my playbook for everything that I've done is sort of being there to ask the questions and to listen and to maybe see some other things that some folks can't quite see because they're too close to it or too far away from it. And uh, either either kind of one-on-one or as a small group or as a bigger group or whatever, to start to make shape of that and to start to feel good about it as as good as about it as possible. And, and, to, and then also to direct like, where do we want this to go? What do we want it to be? You know, and yes, I am doing that with my life all the time. And it feels really good to be able to do that with others. And then I think when we get to the end of life, um, it's sort of the same, only different, you know, it's, it's like, 
what was this life and how do we want to honor it and how do we want to count it up and what can we do with that life now to carry it forward with us and to keep it as something that um that feeds us and nourishes us and that we can feed back and that we can continue to have a relationship with. I mean, I think that's something that I end up speaking about so often with people is I just really think your relationship with someone, it it doesn't necessarily end at the end of their time on earth, you know? Um, So I kind of, sorry, I just went in a couple different directions there, but. Which is great. I'm mesmerized. Can I talk to you about, um, something I'm wondering about that that my version of is my mom. You know, like I can tell you that that loss, and and I don't need to go into it because the listeners have heard me describe it enough. But that's the like you would put it. That's the one. You know, mm-hmm. and and I'm wondering if part of what we can do here is talk a bit about the story of your own loss, and and your dad is that ver- that strongest, most powerful version of it in a way that connects to some of what you just articulated. Yeah, It might just begin with like, what was that? You know, what was that loss? And I know you've, you've said already to me the complications of it, like any relationship with a parent, but wondering about sharing a bit of that and then see if we can bring it back into some of what you just shared. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah, so um, my dad was, you know, he was kind of, he, I, I look a lot like him. We, we were really similar people. Um, we sort of had that family where my dad, or rather my mom and my brother were very similar and me and my dad were very similar. And um, we shared, unfortunately, a lot of the same illnesses and body problems over the years. And um, in the early 2000s, he things were just going off the rails for him and he was he was kind of dying for quite some time in that way and um by 2016 2015 2016 things were it was really the end of the road and and he was um he was beginning to be really angry in ways that I didn't know how to deal with and he and I had always had this very like close relationship and we would talk about things and we were trying to kind of untangle things and trying to understand the world together. And, um, somewhere along the route, you know, in those early years, I, it did dawn on me. I had this moment of sort of saying, you know, I I don't have kids. And, um, I said to myself, well, I'm never going to give birth, but I think I could give death to my dad. I think I could, I think I could give him this good experience of, of, um, processing and and working through things and I, I really wanted to do that um and and I, I think I did but I think that also towards the end of his life um he just you know I don't know if I'll ever really understand what happened in him but he kind of was withdrawing maybe or anger was the only thing that he could really sort of be inside of and and we weren't quite as close as we had been and and so when he was in the hospital, um, I think we all knew that he was actively dying. Um, and and I, I didn't get to have that experience that I thought I wanted to have. I didn't, you know, it wasn't like, 
I didn't feel that he knew I was there. I didn't feel that he, you know, was comforted by me. It wasn't, I wasn't, you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't really a beautiful experience at all. Um, weirdly until the moment that he died and after he died, I'm trying, trying to figure out whether or not I want to tell this whole story or not. After he died, this yeah, very, yeah, this, yeah. this very like strange and magical thing happened where a song came on the sort of in-room Muzak platform that existed in this hospital room. And um, the music had actually been turned off. And I know that because his wife had been there with him. And when I was with him, I turned the music on. And when she was with him, he tur- she turned the music off. And she had been there. I had been gone. I, my, my inner compass told me to go back in the room. When I went back in the room, he had just died. And the music was off. But then the music came back on <laughs> and it was this song like it like the most if, if anybody out there relates to sort of sharing a really like kind of almost you're mildly embarrassed of it like am radio kind of like anthem thing that you you know there's a real tearjerker that you share with somebody it was that it was jim croce's time in a bottle which is like the most like kind of overwrought sort of and, and it was like you couldn't have picked. There's not a, a song that could describe the musical connection between my dad and I better. And it just appeared in the room. Like I say appeared and then I wonder if I should correct myself. I'm like, no, we heard it. We saw it. We felt it. We could taste it. It was everything. It was just in that room. And, and that sanctified the whole thing it made the difficultness of his death better it made the fact that I felt guilty because I didn't know if I was showing up the right way I didn't know what had happened to us in that moment it was like no babe don't worry if I could save time in a bottle I'd spend it with you it's still the same I still feel that way you know and and it took me a little while to put it all together but what this turn that I've been making towards death care and grief work and living in a world where I can help create and facilitate conversations around all of these things, what it is for me is kind of being a little bit of a junkie for that moment, kind of being like, this is the realest thing that I know on this earth is the weird, sacred, surreal, radical, raw, transcendental, super emotional, beautiful, weird shit that happens in the moments when a person moves from this world to the other. My dad used to always say, shoot through. He would say, well, when I shoot through, you guys just need to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and he didn't shoot through. It's not what was happening in that room at all. It was really different than that. But, but it still kind of works, you know. And, and when in those moments and in the days that surround the moments and for as long as you can possibly keep your arms around that time, Um, some really magical stuff can happen. And I I enjoy being there 
to see that with people and to help them process it and in some ways to document it. You know, that's part of my sort of journalism background. I want to be there to, I want to be the paper of record, (laughs) you know, for those magical moments and um, just to help it be a part of our lives. So that, that was, that was how, that was how it shifted in me. And there were some other things there. There was a very close aunt that I did sort of very actively companion through her last days and kind of had that experience. I think a lot of us have where, you know, she sort of chose to die with me alone, you know, when everyone else had left. And I think a lot of us have those kinds of experiences that, um, say something to us about um, who we are and who we can be and um, and you sometimes end up really wanting to stay with it. All I knew that I was going to do for this segment of the show is sing that song. Don't know where I'm going next. Hold on to your britches. Here we go. No, you know what usually happens here. It's a call for support. What are the ways you can support You're Going to Die, the podcast? We can put them in a real sweet list of three. First, it's something you can do while you're listening to the show. Just rate and review it. That's it. You don't have to use extra seconds of your life. Use the time while you're listening. Go into your podcast app, rate and review the show, please. Telling you, doesn't cost you any money and you're already here. That would be great. Number two, word of mouth. Share this episode with someone you care about. If it's resonating and they already popped into your head, text them, email them, send them over somehow this episode or the episodes or the podcast in general. Get them connected to it. I think about it like you're out in the world, you meet someone, they start telling you about some grief they're experiencing, loss they're going through. This is their community connection here to people that understand and are offering a lot of things that can meet them there where they're at, what they're going through. But the podcast alone, I think, I hope, if you're listening, is it true? Is this meeting you and your mortality and your grief? Is it offering you something right there? Well, if so, share it with people. Share it with other people who need that too. And then lastly, go to patreon.com forward slash YG2D. You can contribute as little as $2 a month. So just give up something in your life twice a year. You know that you pay for the beer, the ice cream, the one back massage. Take that money and that one week where you don't have that one beer or that one massage or that one pint of ice cream, you'll think instead of buying this right now, your hand will be on the thing, right? It'll be right there. Maybe not the beer because once they, once they give you a beer, well, even the massage, I don't know, you put your hand on a massage, but let's stay with the ice cream metaphor. It's not a metaphor. It's a real thing, actually, but let's just stay with that. Oh my gosh, I'm losing my mind. Your hands on the ice cream. Stop there. Think about us. Think about the podcast. Withdraw your hand. Go into your phone. Patreon.com forward slash YG2D. 
take that money, give it here. Help us do more of what we're up to. We need your support. All these three ways, take your pick or do them all, would be so helpful for us here at You're Going to Die, the podcast. Thanks. Yeah, I think it's, um, I think, you know, the fact that many of us have had and are having these profound experiences with a loved one's death and doing something with it, you know, I'm so interested in that. Like my background in sociology and anthropology, you know, I, I love to see and to look for and to find those those shifts and those kind of zeitgeist moments, those sort of gestalt, just, I'm sorry, gestalt kind of uh, happenings. And um, I'm so interested in how many folks are doing things like end of life doula training and are going, how do I work in death care? Like, how do mm-hmm. I get closer to this? And, and I think that, um, you know how when there's going to be a tsunami or some um, natural disaster, often the birds, like mm-hmm. shorebirds, will like head up to the hills, right? Yeah. Like there's something in like animals that sometimes yeah. tells them like, we got to get ready, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I, I don't necessarily, I don't know why I apologize for seeming post post apocalyptic apocalyptic when yeah, everything on HBO right is like, like every show that everybody watches is, yeah. is about the apocalypse. <laughs> I don't mean to seem, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm marching in that same direction, but I think it also has to do with, um, what is sometimes called the silver tsunami, you know, and this approaching era of so many, this large generation of baby boomers who are getting older. And I think that we are going to experience a lot more death. Um, And that there is going to be a need for more of us to be, um, to have an affinity with it, to have an ability to hold it, to have a desire and an appetite to be there. Yeah. And so um, I think it's really great that shows like yours and, and, and others that are helping connect folks to each other and to talk about ways that people that do feel that urge to, you know, fly up to the hills, as it were, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, have something real to think about about mm-hmm. what that might mean, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, had a friend when I was living in the in New York in the 90s. Um, she was pregnant and she was Puerto Rican and she was going to have a boy. And she was, this is one of those weird things that has just stayed with me 25 years later. I can just remember it clear as day. She was going to have a boy and her grandmother had told her, oh, everybody is having a boy right now. And you know what that means, right? 
and and no and and you know and her grandmother said you know when when everybody has a boy that means that 18 years from now there will be a war and all those boys are needed to go off and fight the war and I just love like folk sense like that Mm -hmm. you know and ways that grandmothers Mm -hmm. have of explaining things and Mm -hmm. And so I, I think about that um, in terms of people turning towards death doula work. And as somebody that works in death care, I do often hear, um, you know, can you share your experiences? I want to work in death care and I want to know how to work in death care. I mean, it's just so interesting that there is this groundswell of people wanting to get into that field. Yeah. I'm feeling quieter than usual because I'm just loving how you speak and don't think me interjecting as much as I'm always like, it should be dynamic, you know, and and I'm just feeling like I described the opportunity to get with you, which is what we need. And hopefully you're getting what you need, but I'm feeling like I'm getting a heck of a lot what I need. Um, so no, I'm just wrapped. And that's, that's why I'm so quiet. And I'm not like throwing more in the mix because I feel like your flow is, is what's needed here. And I cannot agree more um this deference to whoever did the schooling and has their certificate you know on the wall um i just need to be careful not to overstate this because i just have needed these resources and human beings and no people do but there's no question i think for a lot of reasons, what's ahead in terms of how much death is coming, but that when there is more life, there's more death does not need to be, you know, made more clear, like just that fact. And whether that's the baby boom or population explosion, you know, what we're, what we're seeing happening on that planet alone, you know, and all the reasons that come out of that too. Um, but also what I believe, which is something I keep learning about because it's risky, It's risky to go into spaces and ask community to take responsibility for these things, both because our culture is leaning towards not, you know, mostly for the last decades. Um, But right now, it feels like a place, an edge to push into. And I think like you, you know, I appreciate the acknowledgement, you know, I hope the podcast and certainly the open mic space, the opening, you know, that that offers and things like our grief release that we do every week. Um, it's this, it's this chance to say, how can we be responsible for these things? How can we hold these things for each other in a way that we've been told we, we, it's risky. You need to just tell them to call that 1-800 number or go to a professional. Um, and I think what you're articulating is not just that it's needed now, but that it's going to be needed more and more. If it really re- it resonates, you know, with me deeply. Um, I got what I needed from people that were quote unquote mental health professionals, just as one category to name. And something wasn't available that I sought out with, like I told you, in starting something that would lead to literally to you and I talking. So this isn't a question. It's a it's a hallelujah, amen. You know, uh, in response to everything you just shared. Yeah, I mean, community care, man. You know, like we can't. Nobody, nobody's coming to save us. We got we have, we got to save each other. You know, we have to be there for each other. And um, it's interesting the notion of sort of 
degrees and certificates and um yeah i think you know along with anti-capitalism if we could if we could slide in ideas of anti-patriarchy in there as well like to the degree that we can make the world more feminine and 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 expansive you know i think that it's it's not necessarily about um learning the things that are on the test and mm-hmm. you know having the certificate but it's it's about having yeah. the having the desire and the pull inside you that tells you that you could be useful you know that that's what i hear from people so often is they're just pulled towards it they want to they want to know how they can be a part of it and um I think that connects to what we're dealing with in this time too, is like purposelessness and meaninglessness. Yeah. Um, but also, by the way, I want to say, Laura, let the, that you're a version of and that I believe I, I, I feel like I am, you know, in my work, which is the like, you're not, do not come to me because I have all the answers. Come yeah. to me because what you'll learn here is how you are, that you have answers, yeah. that you can do this. You yeah. Know? that you, you could find purpose with me. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe, maybe that leads into, I could tell you a little bit about uh, the mapping work that I do. I, I want to talk about that. And, and, and I know, I think we both do, so we will not miss it, but I, what I want to talk, take a quick moment to make room for, and you could be like, I don't need to talk about that. Grief mapping is where we're going. Um, and I'll and I'm down, uh, but I do want to kind of connect to what I feel like you lived through after your dad died. That seems to, from what you've told me already, connect a lot to what the ways you relate to him. One of the ways that you guys, you know, fell similar, um, which is the medical stuff, the medical mm-hmm. reality. And so then I think maybe having a version of forgive me, just just slap this away if it doesn't resonate. But you know, it's you watch your dad die. You're with him you see the 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 way it all went down for however long and then suddenly you're a version of it you know in the hospital and and not ultimately dying obviously but maybe having some deaths happening through there you know um metaphorically or even maybe i don't know and now i'm starting to say the answer that i'm asking you to give me but mm. i'm wondering do you want to do you want to like share a little bit of that um, maybe before we go into to the grief mapping and some of the other work you're up to. I do. And I appreciate you calling that out. I don't know that I would have sort of asked for it on my own. Um, and you're, yeah, you're kind of reading something there. I think for sure is that, um, part of really who I am and that I haven't fully brought into what I do is, is chronic illness is about chronic illness is, and is sort of seeped in chronic illness and um, and what we do with these bodies that you know maybe don't run as fast as others and um, that take special tending and care and how do we how do we live with that sorrow and grief you know and I think um, I am in the middle of trying to find what I can find from that. You know, it's been a super hard season for me and my body since, since the new year. Um, it's just been kind of, you know, 
battling really. And, uh, it's hard to know what that is about, you know, and folks that have chronic illnesses, I think it's just, it's such a loneliness because it feels like the world is happening all around you. Everyone else is doing all the things and you're not, you know? And so, and you're, you, yes, you're right that having, because I did share a lifelong illness with my dad, we both had this very in- invasive, super intense surgery that kind of rendered both of our bodies kind of duct tape together and not entirely, you know, whole. Um, I, I really do and did and continue to associate, you know, sort of his kind of physical brokenness with my physical brokenness. And I'm trying like crazy to turn that into something that I can use. And I think, I think that gets me my best bet so far or what I think I'm doing with, with chronic illness and what it is for me and, and how I could help others is around, um, kind of legacy work and life story work that, that, um, is very much a beautiful part of end of life training and end of life doula, uh, toolkit, if you will, is, um, is helping folks go, okay, well, here we are, you know, maybe at the end, what do you want to say about who you've been? You know, what do you want to say about the hard things and the soft things and the beautiful things and the difficult things? And because that is something I can do. I, I, I can, I can help you tell your story and I can help you. We can do it in writing. We can do it in collage. We can do it in video. You know, I can pull on all of my modalities to help folks, um, work through that. And I think it's what I need. And, and I think in that beautiful way that sometimes what, what we need is what we can offer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that maybe not even just within end of life, but within, um, chronic illness and within, um, spaces of just of illness and, and, and physical health, not being exactly what we wish it to be. I, I, I think that maybe in the future I might be moving more into that area and helping folks that are in that world to, um, document and, and paint and illustrate and tell about and and even map, you know, to use a word that is just always works for me, um, who they are and, 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 and to allow it to be what it is and to layer over it, you know, what they're hoping that it can also be, you know, I'm a big radical acceptance person and getting on the level with what it is and, and just agreeing day in and day out to do the best with the material that is there, um, is, is kind of where I'm tend to live. Yeah. Boy, I'm so glad we made some time for that because I feel like the grief mapping is for sure the next thing, uh, uh, you know, um, as a version of it, you're already pointing to it, mapping, the word map, the word mapping. Um, let's get into that. Thank you for sharing all that. Thank you for sharing everything so far. Oh my gosh, Laura. <laughs> oh my goodness. <sighs> 
Yeah. Yeah, well, after my dad died, you know, I I was, at that time in my life, I was working in fashion. I was, had a great job, I you know, by a lot of standards. And I, I was traveling to Fashion Week in Paris and London and New York like twice a year. And I was interviewing like these beautiful minds and, and documenting like their, their beautiful ideas. And, and it was wonderful. And it was also really awful. And it was, um, hard on my body and it was hard for me to find myself in it more and more as time went on. And, and, and I ended up leaving that world and, um, a job or two later, um, things came to an end again in this, you know, in terms of me sort of being employed by somebody else and telling other stories that I didn't quite have agency in. Um, and I, I kind of said, okay, I'm going to do things my way for now. And one of my best friends and a longtime creative partner, um, Jessa Carter, she and I opened a, um, sort of small boutique creative agency together. And we did that work for a while. And then after about a year, we sort of did what we would sort of advise any of our clients to do and kind of tally up how things were going and is what we're doing a good match for what we say we're doing on our website? And are there things that we want to guide ourselves into? And how are we really doing in all of this work? And so something that I said that weekend was, and I don't know where this came from, but I said, you know, we do brand development, but I wish that we could say we do brand and personal development. And I, and I just said it, and then we kind of moved on, but it rang in my ears for months. And then, and then by that time, it was, you know, February 2020 when everything changed. And so I said, mm-hmm. I think I have to listen to that voice that was talking about wanting to do personal development. And, you know, I was 48. At that time, something. you said that. You had that moment yeah. of remembering. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Because we all, yeah, everything was not, not we all rather, but some of us had this moment of like, okay, what I'm doing is not going to continue to happen. Um, I got to figure out something else. And so um, I began looking for, and this kind of goes along with sort of our, our thoughts on sort of this, this funny thing about certification and this kind of thing of community care and sort of like, you know, I, I, it's not that I believe that anybody can do whatever they want, but I also don't really believe in like, you know, you need certain letters after your name or, you know, to kind of go through somebody's, you know, $25,000 a year program and, in order to get like the certificate or whatever. And, and so I thought to myself, if I could find a coaching program that I feel really good about, that's what I'm going to do. And it took a lot of effort to find a good coaching program. I will, um, shout out cap Institute. It's, um, coaching and, and positive psychology training, um, based in Atlanta owned and, uh, operated by a black woman. And it, I, it was great. It was everything that I needed. It really was about positive psychology. It really was about coaching. It really is about how do we, um, 
ask the, help people to ask the right questions. You know, I, I don't have answers. I'm never telling anyone that I have answers. I do so many projects that are about like asking more questions, you know, trying to reiterate. It's not about anyone else having the answers, but I will help you ask the right questions. And when I was done with that program, I just, um, I just knew it was right. And I knew I was going to do some combination of coaching and consulting that I wanted to continue doing what I was doing with um, content work and strategy work and brand work and writing and editing, but also coaching. And I just trusted that it was an okay, oh, maybe that's a weird collection of things to do, but I think I think it will come. And, um, and it did. And a, a lot of artists and visual creatives came to me, a lot of people who were very stuck, as many people were stuck in 2020, who had either lost their jobs or some form of some fork in some road where they just didn't know where to go. And the combination of me having a lot of faculty around brand storytelling and um, brand development and content strategy and what stories are yours to tell and how can you tell them and, and then layering in that personal psychology work and that personal coaching work, um, it, was quite, it was really beautiful to do with people. And in and around that time, um, I also had some, you know, we all have those kind of really powerful friends in our networks. I hope we all have these powerful friends in our no, in our networks who can sort of say things to us and um, and sort of help us see things and give us kind of the bravery and the courage to see things. And I had these friends say to me, you know, Laura, you should also offer grief work. They they said. Um, you went through that grief program after your dad died and you liked it and you didn't like it and it was good and bad, but you could do your own thing. You could offer grief work along with this work that you're doing. And I didn't know this was going to be such a theme of our conversation, but again came this idea of certification. And I looked around to see if there was certification and I did not agree with anything that I was seeing. It all felt really wrong and I just trusted myself to try my own approach. And uh, within my coaching work, I had this thing called story mapping. You know, there's that story thing again. And I was helping folks to kind of map their story. Where does your story want to go? What does your story include? And I thought, well, we could do that with grief. You know, it's grief mapping. And I had a real aha moment from a woman that I believe is you know, one of my unofficial teachers, Clarissa Pinkola Estes, who many people might know from um, Women Who Run With Wolves, but she's got a couple, you know, several other things that I, I to me are, are more important than that book. But um, she has this idea of descansos, which is about mapping where the parts of you died and mapping where losses occurred. And, um, and I kind of, I kind of picked that up and I just brought it into my office and sat with it for weeks and played with the idea and created this program. And around the time that it started to make sense to me, those same friends said to me, hey, we have this mutual friend. Her dad just died. She needs somebody. She can't find anybody. Can you work with her? And I said, well, I definitely relate to that fact that it's hard to find you know, somebody, you know, you're just Googling, <laughs> what do I do with this grief? You know, mm -hmm. how do, how does this get better? 
And well, it's well hard. Ju- just a real quick, take a moment there. Yeah. I think people be like, what do you mean? I mean, I found a therapist. Well, that's great. That's great. I think they're like, a lo- what do you think the difference is for a certain kind of person to, because I, I have the same feeling. Like I left this innocence conference this last weekend. Sorry to like cut in here, but no, I want to, I want to magnify this moment real quick or zoom in on it. You know, I left this weekend where we went and did what we do. You know, our Live Inside program offers grief space in a sort of restorative justice fashion at the Innocence Conference because they're exonerees, people that were innocent that are now free with their partners and sometimes their family um, and the legal teams, you know, like attorneys and legal aides. And we make room for people to just open up and get vulnerable about the grief, you know, and, and whatever else, but a lot of that. And, and someone died. Uh, one of the directors of one of these innocence projects died in his hotel room at the conference. Wow. And I'm in that space. I find out about this. Wildly, the person that we were there with sort of partnering up reaches out to me and says, I'm in communication with the organization about this loss and what do you think I should offer? And and she's a mental health professional and she's incredible. You know what I mean? Like the good, the, the best version of, of someone doing that work, I think one of them. And she's asking me, you know, like what, what do you offer people in this kind of loss in the wake of this kind of loss? So immediately and so that was the first thing, right, is feeling like I'm someone who a mental health professional is going to to ask for support in how to deal with this. And then I'm the one that ends up being, because of that connection, that network, uh, I'm the one that ends up being in communication with uh, the person who's bringing the wife in to come get the body. And then the next day, too, I'm walking uh, you know, through the, this like hotel space where the conference is at. And I happen to walk by someone on the phone who's a part of the organization and she sees me in my name and it says, Oh, Ned, we need you. Um, this is, by the way, is not me bragging that like everybody, you know what I mean? But I'm, what I'm trying to highlight. (laughs) I feel you, I feel you feeling a little, all the things inside Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. And so just to kind of bring it back to what you just said, it's a question we are making room for. And I feel like it's what you and I need uh, then, which is this, what is that? Why is it that someone goes through a loss and the mental health professionals aren't there? There's a need, but also there's something else that is being sought. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you could be like, I don't know, I don't know, because I because I feel like we we've maybe answered it a little bit already in some of what we've talked about, but it's like, why would that person? Why you? You know, and and I I can answer that, but I'm also like that's such a curiosity to me because I think we've lived through a time and and have had maybe our own versions of where I did when my mom died went and found the bereavement group I did and I yeah. found the therapist out of that group who was one of the the guides of my life, right. um, and something was missing ongoing from there and and so like that at this conference where there's mental health professionals like declared. And not that they maybe didn't get help from them too. Somehow I'm now 
still here now, and we might edit this out, in communication with with other exonerees, like having one-on-one calls with exonerees who are, you know, in the wake of this loss. I have the information of the wife that someone's like, she needs you. And I'm like, how is that? How is it that? (laughs) That's a big question, but, but I'm feeling that for you in that moment. It's a moment like that where it's, you're the one, someone directed them to you. Yep. 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 I, I think what that is. So I know after my dad died, what I wanted to do was talk about it. And I wanted to hear, I wanted to talk about it with others who had been through anything similar. And I wanted to read books by people. I wanted to read memoirs of folks who had lost someone. I wanted to live inside what it feels like to go through that and how to move through it and what's possible and how it can be beautiful and how it can shape you and, and, and call to you and make something change inside you. And I think that what I, began to notice even after just after my dad died and I was more and more in communion with people um, who had lost a parent in particular I was very interested in people who had lost parents for a while Um, I almost did my whole sub stack about uh, I almost named it dead parent society and I was Mm going to make it more specific to just people who had lost a parent (laughs) yeah Um, I feel that yeah I'm sure you do Ned Mm -hmm. um what people want is to hear other people's stories and to to relate right. with other people. Yeah, it's it's stories. Like yeah. what like stories. It's stories, you know? And there is a sense that <laughs> yeah. in in therapy, like there's a sort of an energy that goes from one thing into That's another right. and then it doesn't really return quite the same. That's but right. in You're in right. community in community, it, go, it it's it's all out here together, and we work on it as a something bigger than ourselves, you know. And and so I think when the bereavement groups are beautiful thing, you know, and and we can create that in one on one ways with each other as well You're too, right. you know. And yeah, that's what was so good about that for me. Yeah, same compulsion that you're like the dead parent society. That's what I got right away. That bereavement group was not a gloss group. It was specifically loss of a parent. Yeah. And, and that immediately is what I got for like a year. And the therapist who facilitated that group is who I started seeing afterwards. But thank God you had an answer that I probably, I guess if I just been like, well, what is your answer? I, maybe I would have said something similar, but that's exactly right. I, I just so, I'm so appreciating that you had something definitive to, to reply with when I, when I wanted to, you know, focus on that. That's yeah, so it would good. have been okay if I didn't know though too. Me like, too. Not, I would have been knowing, like, good luck everybody. <laughs> yeah. Not knowing is, is an exciting right. kind of thing. Cause it, You're cause right. it being open and having mm-hmm. that curiosity and, and, you know, Me too. but, um, but, but yeah, what I see Thanks. is that, that, we want to know each other's stories and we want to hear how other folks have moved through things and, and we want to tell our story. So that's like, you know, bottom line um, for me in terms of grief and, and what has the power to shift it and change it is simply um, being helped to tell the story in a really complete way, being helped to connect it to other stories. 
I think a lot of that happens that we feel and don't always, can't always slow down and go, yes, that is true. I keep thinking about these other things that happened. I seem like I want to connect those things. So that's that mapping of kind of like understanding how these things in our lives are similar, lining them up on a graph or a map or a big jumble of dots on a piece of watercolor paper and sort of saying these things all feel the same and and I need to talk about them and share them and think about them together and then understanding how some of that is universal and human and how other people move through that and with it and because of it Mm -hmm. and and so to 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 be allowed and to help to tell the story the stories, to have them held and honored and reflected back. It's not really any more complicated than that, but it does take a real commitment to it. And then I think the other thing that I personally do with mine is, with my work and with my interactions with people is like, what can we make of this? And I really, because my life is really about um, making things, you know, I'm a real maker. It's like food and music and content and everything else. Um, And I love to help other people. Um, I think right now we're in such a period too of like this, everybody is yearning for more creativity in their life. And, um, and really what's what's more healing at the end of something than to create something. So what I do with grief mapping is really try to have a project that happens as that work starts to coalesce and not come to an end per se, but as we start to kind of go through the, the steps that I've outlined is kind of the last piece is to create something. And, and it can be a dinner party, you know, it can be, um, it can be a short story or a a book of poems or, you know, somebody can put together an art show of their watercolors, you know, it can also be bigger and grander and weirder than that. It can, it doesn't, it's not about, you know, how many people come to see the thing or how many additions you make to pass out and sell at the local bookstore it's it's not about that it's about what is right for that person to to make something out of that experience that will somehow honor and and honor everybody involved Thank you.
you want to find out more about Laura and what Laura's up to, just go to Grievers Ball at Substack. So GrieversBall.substack.com. As usual, I'll link it in the show notes. What an emotional conversation it was to be with Laura. It felt like the the kind of conversation I needed to have in 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 the dark. Like I, I feel like I was just feeling a lot. I just like remember this conversation like a lot of tears, just listening uh, with my jaw hanging open. Um, thank you, Laura, for how you met me here. So good to be with you, and so glad to share it here with all of you, including you, Nick Jana. Hello, how are you? Hi, how hi, are you? Hi, oh, you are high. Uh, <laughs> I am high. I am high as hell. Um, how are you doing today? I'm good. I was just thinking how in <laughs> in in uh, in in French you can just say like Sava, and then you can say Sava, and the, it would be like if we said like How are you? And you could say How? I guess we do do that. How are you? You know when people just do that. How are you? How are you? They don't actually say how they are. <laughs> what? Oh, oh, I see. That's the reply. Or like, Saba. how do you do? Uh, or, you know, like, yeah. How do you do? How do you yeah. do? <laughs> well, it is that going back to that. I feel like the early episodes, we talk about this because I'd often meet the guests and say, how are you doing? And yeah. then I'd mean, I really want to know like yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. how are you doing? I don't really want to know with you today. I'm not going to put you through that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to tell you. Oh yeah. Do you want to ask me how I'm doing though? How are you doing? How was, uh, how has the San Quentin mm. experience been lately? Uh, good. Yeah. We just went in last night, Chelsea Coleman, who I think, you know, um, Morgan, <laughs> Morgan Bolander, Scott Ferreter of the feelings parade. Um, I just, yeah, it was just another one of the many moments of like, gosh, like, please more, like, can I do this again? Um, mm. I, 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 I want to acknowledge sort of the reliability with, this is not an acknowledgement of me. It's just an acknowledgement for these kinds of spaces, how seductive they are, how reliably worthwhile they are. Mm. Last month we went in and for whatever reason, you know, we've, we've been back in since the pandemic. So it's, it's this first event a month ago, our alive inside open mic, those listeners out there who have heard me say, I go in every week. That's with another program called the light keepers working with San Quentin mental health, uh, facilitating that group, a suicide prevention group, um, community supporting other community, but our live inside series, which is, uh, a version of the open mic we do for general community the you're going to die poetry pros and everything goes shows alive inside is that, but inside prison. Um, and we just got back a month ago to doing those again after the three year hiatus because of the pandemic. Now to answer your question, Nick, last month it was wild because I went in with Rachel Garcia and two Tran of the singer and the songwriter and uh, Jordan Adelheit, our, um, prison program manager. And I think maybe what happened is we took over a space that wasn't scheduled correctly and bumped a band in San Quentin, the greater good. We bumped them from their rehearsal space, which was, you know, embarrassing, wait, wait, but wait. it also was the band was the, called the greater good. They're called the greater good. You displaced the greater good. We displaced the greater good. Not my fault, but they, they were in the space that we were told we were having our event. So all these 
different groups had to like shift around until the chapels, there's three of them in San Quentin, uh, for different churches and religions and events, but we finally settled, but the band didn't have a place to be. And so I strongly invited the band to come and instead of rehearsing, just play music <laughs> at our event. <laughs> and thank God they said, yes, it's like a five to eight member band. And for whatever reason we had, while we were back with our event, we hadn't tapped into the promotion uh, of our event like we'd done before, which didn't take anything on my end. I can't even do anything, but the, the, the events we did before the pandemic were very populated 40 or more people at all of them. And for whatever reason, this event, we're in a huge church space. <laughs> there was maybe, I don't know how many people came in, but I want you to know that the band being there doubled the size of our attendees. <laughs> and so it was a big deal to have their presence there. It was probably the smallest event I've done in prison to date. And to go back to what I said earlier, it was so incredibly worthwhile and wonderful and moving and all the sharing, this open mic sharing that happened, Rachel and two's music, the greater goods music, very diverse band playing, very diverse music and really, really well. It was incredible. Um, and since then I've been like, what do we need to do to connect more community to this? As it turns out, one way that one of the community members inside acknowledge is more effective than word of mouth. It's getting images and posters and advertisements up on the, the CCTV and their close, you know, closed circuit television, which is just, I think probably running kind of all day long where people can see advertisements and videos that the CDCR shares and, um, and for those of you that don't know, CDCR is in California's uh, rehab prison system, um, the acronym for that. Um, and so we got our, our poster up on CCTV this month. And then I printed out a bunch of posters and postcards and gave them to everybody. And I officially invited the greater good, the band, to be our in-house band for the open mic. Because not just... Do they double our audience members, not just because they're a good band, but also because their spirits, like the kinds of humans they seem to be, just land right in the mix. And last night proved that Wait again. Wait a minute. So, oh, yep. Go ahead. I, I go just ahead. realized, like, th yeah. this is a band that on the inside, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, they're okay. all, yeah, they're all people serving time in San Quentin who have formed okay. a band called the Great. I thought Good. it was Thank like a, yeah. an other. Uh, that would make no sense. Why would a band visit well, yeah, I mean, and just rehearse? There's really cheap space. There's really cheap space out of hey, San Quentin for rehearsal, you guys. It's crazy space. expensive everywhere else. But in San Quentin, you can get a deal. No, it's uh, it's a band, yeah, inside, formed by a community, incarcerated community inside, all very talented musicians. And so last night, not only did Rachel, uh, not only did Chelsea play music and Morgan and Scott play music, but the greater good played songs also peppered throughout the evening and whatever we did as far as promotion was hugely effective. There was probably 40 people in attendance, um, like the olden days. 
And it was, if a thing can, if a thing like that could be called flawless, it just felt that way, you know, just timing and balance of shares and the music and, and, and Chelsea and Morgan and Scott getting to like play with the greater good and have them back each other on songs and really seeing that right. Special to have music inside, be a part of our event, special to bring Bay area musicians into San Quentin, but extra special to have that like togetherness of musicians that you know better than I do is such a powerful thing. Like, come on up, like play a song with me. Do you mind playing guitar? You know, while I do my, my song, um, that was so incredible and special and very emotional. We had a moment for our dead, just a quiet stretch where we just named, named our people, you know? Um, and, uh, so good to be back in there. It was awesome. Mm -hmm. Wish you were there. Yeah. I remiss that these are tending to happen on Tuesday evenings when Mm -hmm. I have teaching classes, but we'll get you back in there someday. Yeah. Eventually. All right. Well, hey, thanks for asking, Nick. Glad to talk about that. Feels good to process that a little more the day after. And thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you enjoyed this episode. So good to be here again in your ear. Until next time, take good care now. Bye-bye.